the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, pure violence without object. This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our discussion, we just want to mention we do have a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a buck a month there or maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. Either way, we appreciate you. Today, we're going to have a look at Alain Badiou's Ethics, an essay on the understanding of evil, a text that was was written for what, like a general, maybe like a high school audience or something, right? High school undergraduate. That was a very humbling experience. If this is, this was kind of a challenging read for me. I'm not going to lie. So, just totally blew my self esteem is just in the in the toilet now. You know, you got to imagine that he's writing for this high school undergraduate audience, and I do think that this is a decent first book for getting into Badu, but. That's the thing. You're just getting into him. He's deploying some terms that are rig- more rigorously defined elsewhere and then have to do with machinery. So you, you get to look at, you know, he's already kind of presuming, if not familiarity, with his edifice. His philosophical toolkit. Which I don't think one can presume of a high school student even an undergraduate. You know, I do think that he at least believes himself to be able to generalize in such a way that the book makes sense on its own. And I think that some of the stuff he wrote about may have been pretty clear to you. Like when he, to anticipate a little bit, when he generalizes this notion from Lacan about not giving up not giving ground or not giving up on one's desire. Right. Right. And he turns that into one of the maxims of his ethics, right? Like keep going, continue, don't lose faithfulness. Don't give up on your fidelity to fidelity. I'll talk a little bit about how Badu has these doubles, but this is one of the doubles in this book is this, if there is an ethic of truth, it's like a fidelity to fidelity, a faithfulness to a faithfulness to an event that kind of summons us. Obviously, that Lacanian aspect kind of would, would be clear. Again, I think you would have the benefit of yeah previous exposure to Lacan, whereas I think, again, French high school students may not give a shit about psychoanalysis, at least by that point. The doc that I share with you, I tried to kind of like break down what I saw as the important aspects. And so I would say that if, and this is not just for you or to like 
bolster your spirits, but also for the the readers that they're listening. Because I just got to ask, like, what's the best way to get into to Vidu? And um, you know, I would say the ethics book, Manifesto for Philosophy, is a decent overview. And I think the first translated book of his into English in '96, Peter Howard's book, which is titled Vidu: A Subject to Truth. And then you kind of have to like just make your way through being an event at least to get to a certain extent the edifice the toolkit presupposed in this book is is being an event which would have been written five years prior to this right this was first written in 1993 translated in 2000 being event would have been published in 1988 and translated in 2004 maybe 2002 i'd have to look at the dates even for the readers of this book, when it first came out, being an event would not have been in translation. They would have had some of the same, perhaps, stumbling blocks if they hadn't looked at being an event in French. I guess I'm here to try to talk at least about what I see to be the central concept, not just of being an event, in my opinion, which Badu might say would be truths or subject. I think it's fidelity because that's, the operation that links the two. So I think that if I can do anything in this talk is try to unpack what fidelity consists in, what he might see. So I'll leave that as the meat of the matter again to anticipate for, for later. And if you want, we can just kind of start talking. This is kind of a throwaway comment, but I think it's kind of interesting, given the antagonism rather that uh, Badu has for Deleuze, that they, I mean, is Badu kind of a pluralist as well? And I mean, I think this ethics of the event, right, this is kind of like, at least from the the topic, is sort of, you know, something that he would share with Deleuze, and at least at a very kind of like surface level, perhaps. I mean, do you... I, don't know, I just thought that was kind of interesting. I guess I, I have to question. Like... And I mean, his like multiplicity and difference, like that felt. Right. So yeah, pluralist in the sense in which in the Thousand Plateaus, Deleuze and Guattari say pluralism equals monism or some shit like that. Like I'm not sure in terms of Badu as a pluralist, unless you mean it specifically as a as a as thinking the multiple. Yeah, I I right? yeah, that would probably be I was talking with a friend DMing mm -hmm. this morning and he was also had just uh I forget what books he was delving into, but not the ethics, but we're talking a little bit about this too. So that's why it was on my mind. In terms of pluralism, what's interesting, right, is that multiplicity as a substantive, as opposed to the multiple, which is interesting, right? Because that's that's one of the, the transcendental terms of like Plato's dialectic, if you will, right? The one in the multiple or the one in the many. You know, in terms of philosophies of multiplicity, it's interesting, right? Because I do think that Badu sees and Badu becomes much less polemical against Deleuze, although the polemic changes, you know, <laughs> from the 70s and 80s. I mean, where he's calling Deleuze and Guattari proto-fascists or or whatnot, or proto-fascist ideologues. I forget exactly how he phrases it. And he becomes much more amenable to Deleuze, or at least acknowledges, like he kind of says they're... I think he begins clamor being kind of recounting their exchanges kind of says they're they're kind of brothers there he definitely isolates some of their contiguities right like 
in a philosophy of the multiple. Badu will demarcate their differences. You know, for example, Deleuze has always been quite critical of set theory, but locating math, the mathematical apparatus behind a lot of his philosophy and differential calculus, whereas Badu has always been partial to, to algebra, set theory, et cetera, right? I mean, that's, that's a banal example, but I do think it's important because this question of multiplicity for Badu, he does a move that Larwell criticizes where from the very beginning of being an event, philosophy is no longer attached to ontology, the thinking of being qua being or whatever. For Badu, ontology is mathematics. And so it is right, okay. severed. It is desutured from philosophy. Philosophy is no longer the thinking of multiplicity or the, or the pure multiple. That is, that is a specifically mathematical domain for Badu. Um, and Larwell criticizes this, right? Because for Larwell, non-philosophy is not going to take philosophy and cut it up into regions it wants to preserve it in its identity so Badu does something fairly radical i think compared to a lot of contemporaries in terms of mutilating or dismembering philosophy from one of its chiefly traditional uh domains right its provinces has always been the thinking of being ever yeah. since parmenides or plato or whatever i feel like so, we, this has come yeah. up this notion of ontology mathematics and ontology being maybe that was something we talked about with uh with uh john roof or something i i, I assume feel like yeah. it's it's come yeah. up somewhat in the last maybe year to six months yeah john roof has a book called badoos deleuze again for the audience because a lot of the listeners out there may follow us because of our deep dives into deleuze's work they may find Badu's Deleuze by John Rofe to be fairly spectacular, in my opinion. And he's not the only one to write about this, right? Our, our Vernon Sisney, another friend of the show, has written essays on Badu's Deleuze, although it's, it's not the same title, obviously. But uh, Dan Smith has written on the mathematics of Badu and Deleuze. I'm sure there's a lot more because when Badu came on the scene in English, again, in the early aughts, the blogosphere, there was a lot of this. I was involved in it too. And that's part of the impetus behind my translations and such. I was interested in this, this rift, but contiguity and somewhat yeah, continuity yeah, between right. the two thinkers. You know, I think that, I mean, for Badu, or at least John Rofe, just the, again, this is just kind of background stuff. We're just kind of talking. Right? Yeah. John Rofe's claim is that um, the real differences between, and because Badu's pretty, I think, pretty honest, candid about their contiguities. They both want to have done with this notion of the death of metaphysics or the death of philosophy, the end of philosophy, right? They are both, you know, interested in mathematics, obviously, but do in a much more like rigorously formal way than Deleuze. No offense again to Deleuzeans. I, I kind of side with Deleuze on this issue, but Deleuze's interest in mathematics is not a fundamental basis for his system. Even if differential calculus reveals, let's say, you know, certain aspects of his philosophy informs it. There's other contiguities, but some of the main ones where it's like, Philosophy as system, I think, again, can show a rapprochement to the, between the two. 
But what John Rove points out is that the real differences between Badu and Deleuze don't really lie in where Badu sees them. There's a way in which Badu kind of axiomatically presumes a divergence and then filters his criticisms, if you will, of Deleuze through those. So he kind of, if not begs the question, then at least has a, has a starting point from which to filter out these references to Deleuze and then from there prove that starting point. And so uh, if anyone's interested, Rofe's book is a good look at the real work in, in finding some divergences, which is not just hermeneutic, but also philosophical. That's still to be done. And he gives a, a, a nice, not just outline, but, a, but a, a decent foray into the differences because, you know, together there's tens of thousands of pages or more, maybe in the, maybe bordering the hundred of thousands of pages to like sift through if we looked at all of their written work and we don't have their published correspondence. Badu may have, I mean, maybe they'll, it'll be in the archives once Badu passes or whatever, but you know, he hasn't made that available. Deleuze didn't want it to be made available as Badu claims and in, in his book on Deleuze. In any case, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting just thinking about, it's interesting thinking about, you know, where Badu, I mentioned his softening of a polemic from the fascism of the potato essay, which is an interesting essay about the 1976 publication of Rhizome. Because initially it was published like right. separately as, as yeah. kind of a an anticipation of the of the full book A Thousand Plateaus. He's very critical and he's got a, a book review, so to speak, of anti-Oedipus. You know, at that time when he's very critical of Deleuze and Guattari, he's writing from this perspective in which the party, whether it be the French Communist Party or whatever, a communist party in general is the purview of of his politics and i do think by the time we get to being an event by the time we get to this little book on ethics and particularly the appendix to the book of ethics which is an interview with the translator peter Howard, in which the discussion is on politics i think badu you know he's gotten older he mentions kind of events of change right it's not it's not still in that decade following May 68, blah, blah, blah. So the party is not necessarily the operative form of politics or political sequences for Badu anymore. So there's a shift that I think also ironically or just historically, biographically brings him closer to the Liz, who, unlike Watari, who was kind of always involved, involving himself with groups, if not with the party, though, but you know, Deleuze wanted to forego all of the interminable meetings and, and discussions and all of that, which we've talked about. But Badu also kind of puts into question or calls into question the operativity of the centrality of a, of a term like the proletariat, which would have been something, I think, anathema to the Badu of the 70s and probably early 80s. So, you know, he he kind of puts it up and call you know throws it up in the air whether or not the proletariat is still kind of the operative subject for the collectivity of political sequences. I think that also kind of brings them closer to Deleuze in certain senses, but even perhaps at least the Deleuze and Guattari of Antiedipus, right? Where they call into question a duality of classes, right? The mainstay of dialectical thinking, 
we already mentioned that. I think we even talked about that last week, right? Like about there's only one class, the bourgeoisie, blah, 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 right? So I think that on certain aspects, there is a kind of convergence of the thinkers that even Badu hasn't pointed out. In any case, you know, I'll kind of leave that at bay. Badu is a very prolific writer and a lot of his works have been translated, you know, since 2000. So there's a lot of ground to cover, specifically the three volumes, if you will, of being an event, right? I mean, like, at least that's the way he names them, being an event, Logic's Worlds and the Eminence of Truth. Those are considered like a trilogy. And my familiarity is at least what I'm going to cover for today or what I'm going to bring into, because it's, it's relevant to the book that we have here, even if ethics, at least the translation and the preface to the English edition that Badu writes, he's anticipating publishing Logics of Worlds, which at the time he calls Logics of the World. Even there, there's some interesting discrepancies because the world would be a kind of totalizing category that Deleuze himself calls into question. And Badu would too, based on, you know, there's no set of all sets. So the fact that he, even the title of his work by the time of 2000, six years later will be, you know, world would be pluralized, which I think avoids that, that totalization that's implied by the singular world. I think that if we, if I can bring in at least a little bit from being an event in terms of fidelity, the 25th meditation, I believe, as I said, I think is the central term of not just of that book, but of the ethics. If we can kind of like, if I can use that to help clarify some of the positions that are taken in this book, which I do think that there are some I won't say inconsistencies, but there are some slippery points that aren't fully nailed down, which I we, we can also bring up and push back devil's advocate on. But if I can use that to help bring into focus what I feel is uh, at least interesting and singular about Badu's ethics versus what we might commonly think of, then then, then maybe this will be a productive conversation. If not, I won't make you read Badu anymore. We'll just <laughs> we'll just totally like No, I th I think we should uh I think we should yeah. absolutely cover something at, at the very least, like uh being an event, at least the first first volume of that. Yeah. I was looking uh, according to Wikipedia, Badu's MA thesis was on Spinoza. I didn't know that. Which is kind of interesting given the ethical component. Is that the MA or is that like the secondary thesis? Uh, it says, I mean, Wikipedia says MA. I don't know, you know, roughly equivalent to MA thesis, actually. That's the weird part, right? I, I don't know enough about the French university system to even know if there is anything equivalent to an MA, except for, as I've told you, you know, that you write the two dissertations. One is usually on like a historical figure, for example, um, Rouillet has the book on Cornu. Deleuze has his book on Spinoza, right? Spinoza and the Problem of Expression, or as it's titled in English, Expressionism. So it'd be interesting. That would be interesting if Badu's secondary thesis, which maybe is what they mean, is on um, Spinoza. That, that is interesting. Yeah, I was kind of trying to find out. I had vaguely had notions that 
but you had studied directly or like i guess had at the minimum like attended lacan's lectures he said he um, never attended it looks like he was more he was in a reading group that was run by altisay yeah he said he, he was said he... you know obviously <clears throat> he was quite like you mentioned earlier he was influenced heavily by lacan at least for oh yeah he's he's definitely interested on. he's definitely influenced by lacan i still think he considers lacan to be you know top caliber i mean yeah the last the last meditation of that's what he titles his chapters of being an event is descartes lacan because badu is wanting to if you will resurrect or plot a lineage of a philosophy of the subject or at least a a a, a subject-centered philosophy right so descartes lacan that's the kind of plot he's he's seeing at least you know if, if he attended it was sporadically but i if i remember correctly he says obviously he's like it's like i'm not an analyst i've never been an analyzand i don't plan to be you know i haven't been analyzed but he's obviously read He's been faithful to the Lacanian event, if you will. In fact, you know, I shared one of his his pronouncements on on evil, right? Is like evil is the desire to say to say all, to say everything, right? To name everything um, at any cost, right? So we can detect in like you know Lacan's thesis about the truth can only be half said if that it can't say the all. There's this notion of the not all if a truth could name every element in the situation, it would approach, you know, obviously the contradiction of the set of all sets, it would approach a kind of totalitarianism, a, to a totalizing dialectic. You know, it would threaten the consistency of the situation itself by subsuming the animal that we are into the what Badu believes the immortals that we are as subjects so there has to be kind of some remainder right i mean zizek talks about this a lot right like you know there's this ontological crack this fissure the split and it's by remaining uh it's by like remaining cognizant of the split but also not trying to embody it right as though it's the same with the dialectic of desire and Lacan, right? There's something about like actually getting the desire and, and capturing it and incorporating it that disaster befalls us. Dogs, we'll get to that. Dogs we'll, chasing cars and so forth. I mean, yeah, right, exactly. But we'll get to some of the 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 specters of evil that Badu outlines. There's three of them, but that's one of them, right? Is this question of the unnameable? And what's interesting that he says about the unnameable, and again, this is to anticipate, and this is to broach this dialectic of knowledge and truth, which I do think he also inherits from Lacan, is that it's from the perspective of the subject language of or of from the perspective of truth which is in some sense our fidelity to it the choice the wager on being faithful to an event and elaborating the consequences of truth is like illegal in this in the sense in which uh one thinks of the state of the situation and its count of its its kind of domination of the situation it's illegal because it's foreclosed it's like it's not within 
the situation's element. It's not represented by the situation, at least. It's not a do it's not a part of the domain of knowledge, which he includes opinion. Uh, he calls it the encyclopedia of knowledge, which we can think of as Wikipedia, right? It's not it's not a part of the Wikipedia, right? <laughs> um, there is an unnameable from there is a point at which the truth cannot force. Enforcing is an interesting thing because it's from the perspective of a truth. There will have been consequences in the situation. There will have been knowledge. Like he gives an example of Galilean physics, that nature is mathematizable. So, mm -hmm. you know, from the future anterior, the future retrospective, everything potentially in nature and there is and Badu has a rigorous definition of nature but he even says nature doesn't exist because that's that'd be a totality whatever but there would be the event of this mathematizable physics there's a fiction in which a completed physics will have mathematized everything but it's precisely a fiction because for Badu truths are infinite right and an incompletable and the state of physics, the state of the sciences shows us every day because theories are revised, right, uh, yeah. facts are, are, are jettisoned or, or replaced or substituted. But it's from the fiction of a completed truth that everything in the situation will have been changed. And that fiction is important for forcing truths and, and, and thereby revealing new knowledges that will have been that not yet are, except that we also have to have a kind of an ethic of not completely i mean that fiction is important except that it is from the point of the unnameable still a fiction right and um you know i think that an example of the unnameable because i gave an example of forcing and whatever an example of the enable he gives again in science is um is non-contradiction in mathematics and this is a very like fine point but it's really important because Non-contradiction is like one of the basic fundamental, if not axioms, it's, it's a principle, if you will, of mathematics, right? I mean, you kind of can't do mathematics without, or philosophy or, or kind of quote unquote thinking, you know, Pache Hegel, you know, in speculative notions, but in terms of rigorous science, non-contradiction is kind of paramount. It's the foundation for even like proving certain theorems, right? The re reduction to the absurd, so to speak. But Gödel shows that from within, from inside a mathematical theory, not from an exterior perspective, from within a mathematical theory, one cannot prove the non-contradiction of mathematics, the absolute consistency and completeness of, of mathematics. That is not true. Girdle completely like demolishes the dream of Russell and Whitehead, for example, but a lot of mathematicians to provide the absolute kind of consistent foundations for a mathematics that could eventually be complete. And so that's that's kind of an interesting thing, right? That the unnameable for mathematics then is 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 at least one little point of one truth of the system that can't be proven, right? That's undecidable. One little bit of inconsistency at the heart of mathematics, kind of the same way that quantum physics kind of proves that, you know, there is um, 
it's not a limit to our knowledge or not a frailty of human understanding that we can't kind of know everything like the you know velocity and position of an electron or blah 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 right i'm moving a little bit quickly here and probably speaking a little bit unscientifically which fine we're talking about philosophy but you get you get the point here where there's um some other unnameables he gives like for politics he's he's kind of and this again gets to some of the evil shit that since that is part of the subtitle in politics he says one of the unnameables is the name of the community and he gives not just the example of nazis right the germans or the aryans choosing themselves as the chosen race thereby everyone else is demoted or has to be eliminated you know hitting close to home for himself he he says naming the community french because he's thinking about all of the the turmoil that obviously still exists there and we have our own form of it here in the united states but naming but grounding a collective around the name french implies hostility towards the what's called the workers without papers the quote-unquote illegal the undocumented immigrant workers foreigners the whole affair around the hijab in primary schools for for arab women etc cetera, etc cetera, right the nomination of the collective french implies exclusions and i think that for badu any ethics or any politics has to kind of take as an axiom an egalitarianism, which he sees, for example, in some of the work of like St. Paul, even though Badu's an atheist and denies the, the Christ event, at least in its consequences, he sees St. Paul as like a figure of the militant, the militant of, of a universalism. This gets us to the very beginning of the ethics book, and I'll pause to let you respond where he wants to deny an ethic of differences. That ethics is, for Badu, ethics has become a kind of catch-all. He relates it to democratic materialism and all of this, right? This kind of base democracy. It's, it's, it's about respecting of differences, acknowledging differences and all of that. And while that, that's full of a certain good intention, he sees that as wrong on several fronts, I'll name two. One from the perspective of truths for Badu, truths are indifferent to differences. And instead of creating differences, render the same. And what he means by that is that they're they're for all, they're for everybody. They're not for a particular community, right? They're not for the French, they're not for the Aryans. It's for everyone. And then the other part would be. Badu sees in this respect of differences a kind of hierarchy whereby, you know, civilization, the first world or whatever, is able to respect the differences of the third world. So it's condescending. It's kind of inherently second degree racist at the very least is imperial colonial. It doesn't what he says, respect the situation. And then if you take it to the extreme, it can end up in, well, we can respect differences by demarcating little ethnostates or something. You have your little space over there. I have my space over here. Yes, I respect the other as long as, you know, we mend our fences, right? Or you conform to my notion of... Yes. 
of sameness or that's the thing is like it's like you can, i respect your differences as long as your differences are the same as mine or something like that yeah and that can also be this is one of the difficult parts of Badu's ethics that i think um deserves pointing out but he will put it in terms of the paparian tolerance has to not tolerate intolerance, intolerance right which makes sense from the perspective of of the of the type of ethics he's critiquing. I won't go too much into it because I think it it'll, it'll already involve having to to. I won't I won't go too much into that because I don't necessarily want to make it just about this part. But that's gonna be one of the hard pills to swallow. I think right when you open the book and he's like, he's against. I guess I guess the thing would be there's, he's against the be, type of like liberal universalism. Yeah, or yeah. Like, whatever the liberal understanding of how multiculturalism it professes one thing, but it and practice, it does another, like it undermines its own. Yeah. Yeah, like it's, exactly. It's not right. Like it's, a, it's about homogenization at the end of the day, but going back to differences, your differences, as long as your differences are the same as mine. I think that's where Badu's formulation is, is better because do you render the other same and assert your foundation, which would again be the plenitude, which would be like the French, the American way. It could be whiteness. Right. Be, as I said, Aryans. It could be based around race, promoting a race. I mean, like, this is why Deleuze and Guattari criticize sameness in this respect, because they talk about, you know, they talk about this racist sameness from the white face that there's, it radiates out sameness radiates out and kind of eliminates differences or at least threatens differences the further out you are from the the face of the white heterosexual man blah 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 the more of a threat you are to the to the state of the situation in any case for badu the fact that truths render diff truths are indifferent to differences or render differences indifferent wouldn't retain the kind of hierarchy that you're discussing where it would be i keep my difference you conform to it or at least conform in a you know come close enough that you pass in the system right yeah yeah because this is like yeah this is the big complaint that i often see arguments from the right or from reactionaries etc that with regard i think you know typically it's muslim immigrants that do not assimilate into the greater culture and therefore like that's the problem is there's no assimilation well 150 years ago or or even 100 years ago that would have been like norwegians even though we think of norwegians as white like they weren't assimilating they were making their little they had their little uh or you know catholics right even what almost 50 i guess 60 years ago that would have been a part of the same rhetoric but we can see this take different forms obviously recently recency bias you're right. This question of there's, I guess there would be, as you're saying, there, there would be kind of two regimes of sameness. One would result from truce and a universalism and a for all, which isn't hierarchizing or privileging in a sense, like privileging, like a, a kind of bourgeois stance. I mentioned like civilization, first world, blah, blah, blah. One would, would, would privilege a, a certain fullness or plenitude whether it be traditional values, whiteness, a certain language. We think about all the political difficulties in Quebec, for example, and trying to retain a certain um, 
level cultural of, heritage, everything well, being in well, French, etc. Right. I mean, everything at least having like, I mean, down to like billboards needing to have equal font size for like French and English or the same amount of words or something. So you can see that that what Badu is pointing out is is that, as you said, a kind of democratic universalist liberalism what it comes down to is respect for differences is sometimes hard to distinguish from the competition, the war of differences, if you will. And a lot of times it, it, it can proclaim itself nakedly. And so when you bring up the, the ultra right, there's almost something more refreshing about that kind of chauvinism stepping out into the light and proclaiming itself, because at least then Obviously, it's easier to deny and mock, but at least then it's not trying to hide itself under the guise of a kind of, again, I mean, like to parody. But I, when I was when I started reading this book again, I was thinking like, oh, you know, Badu could really fit into this whole anti wokeness discourse, except that he's a fucking militant Maoist communist instead of uh, instead of being on the ultra right. But you, but you might confuse that if you ignored some of his other statements. But in any case, yeah one could see how there's a little bit something a little bit more respectable about a kind of overt chauvinist racist bigot than there is about kind of hiding ones which i mean maps very bias. well onto our kind of like contemporary liberal versus reactionary or what have you alt-right etc whatever i don't know there's so many <laughs> it's hard to like label it all but it feels like whatever the right the most vocal components of the right these days beat this sort of drum but um i was actually thinking about back to uh durkheim which i brought up a couple episodes but i failed to it was his theory of deviance which i think has some resonance here because it is it is a very dialectical approach in that from a functionalist perspective of deviance like the negativity of deviance serves a positive function in terms of social cohesion. The in-group bonds are strengthened by demarcating what is opposite, what is not acceptable. So mm. it's in the negative that provides, the negative provides the positive cohesion in this sort of argumentation. I mean, you can, I think you can see the logic of like how set theory would sort of work in that regard, as well as Lacan as far as like the excluded one or like the, you know, the primal father or the, or castration, et cetera, right? There's like the excluded one, that sort of, the exception that exemplifies the rule or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that, that this is, this is good because for Badu, what we're, we've been talking about, the ethics that he comes out of the gate, the ethics that he kind of sees everywhere pervading the, what he calls parliament parliamentaro capitalist ethics or whatever um you know he sees all of these as like these negative prescriptions it's a kind of discourses of rights you know not being it's always like written in the negative in the sense of like don't here's what not to do again that's that's a very kind of maybe blanket statement but it, it can help to you know for Badu ethics is always you know, it's always related to a truth procedure. And he, he locates four of them, or at least four domains for truths, art, science, politics, and love, right? So for Badu, 
there's an affirmation of a certain ethics. I, I gave a formula for it, right? The maxim sort of keep going. Don't give up on your fidelity to an event and the truth process that makes one subject thereby immortal. And this, this phrasing of, of becoming immortal through a truth process is interesting because that's not yeah. a link. That's not language that I remember seeing in my rereading of being an event. So this language of immortality, again, this is interesting coming from an atheist. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of the Platonist in, in Badu, I think. So it's from the perspective I mean, because logic of world starts off very, very nicely in, in an interesting polemical way, because it's like, OK, democratic materialism argues everything can be reduced to bodies and language. And then Badu says from the materialist dialectical perspective that he has, except there are truths, because to a certain extent, the ethics that he's decrying reduces us to statuses of victims, to statuses of the dying animal, as he says, right? And I think this is why he articulates this quasi-religious or almost fully religious. Again, the notion of fidelity is what I want to talk about today. And so talking about faithfulness from an atheist is kind of interesting, but yeah, reducing us to the status of the dying animal in, in the sense of the domain of the state of situation, the domain of, of the kind of banal ethics that he's criticizing versus the ethics of truth wherein we are subjects wherein we participate in truth procedures that infinitely surpass us and exceed us and through our fidelity to drawing out their consequences what will have been true what will have been shown to be a part of the situation in which that decision that wager was undecidable was illegal that's where we, we become immortal I mean, that kind of talk from an atheist is, is really interesting. And so that would be one of the last things I'll say about the banal woke ethics, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of parroting Badu a little bit, but the basic ethics that he sees in humanist discourse, I think is what, because he'll, he'll, he'll describe his position. You mentioned Althusser. This is how he remains faithful to Althusser it as, as kind of an event in French thinking. Badu sides with, a kind of anti-humanism. Yeah. So he's, he's on the side of Foucault, on the side of Althusser, et cetera. You know, because I think for... Was it a history as a process without a subject for Althusser? Yeah. Uh, something like that, I think. Well, Unless I fucked that quote up. I thought it was something like that. Yeah, I mean, this notion of subjectless, I think history would apply. I think... Um, you know, I'm trying to remember if he applies everything else, but I think that that's, that's a good paraphrase. He talks about early on in the text, he gives kind of a, I don't know, definition for ethics. Ethics is the principle that judges the practice of a subject, be it individual or collective. So again, this would go back to this kind of, this, I don't know, this necessity of judgment here and relative to what is what are acceptable, agreeable practices and how that informs, like, how do you, how do we arrive at a universal truth when he even draws upon this kind of Mao example of like, anytime there's an idea, it splits into two, which kind of goes back to your example of a girdle, right? Like it's mm -hmm. always this having, having the distance to truth almost 
in a sort of universal sense, but never quite just infinitely having that distance forever and ever and ever, but never really reaching quite the destination. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously on the side of of the truth procedures involved in a fidelity to the event of love, we're talking about individuals, right? How the one becomes two or the two becomes one, depending on your perspective. Or the not two right? or something, I don't know. I mean... I'm just kidding, but um, unless that makes sense, <laughs> then I'm not kidding. And then in the pol in politics, you would obviously have a collective process, even if an individual may be a militant, right? And what's interesting, too, is that Badu is a little bit, this is where shaky ground can be had. But for Badu, there is no operatory rule for the way in which subjects would deliberate, for example, right? That there is sure. yeah. the, the means and the means have to be invented for the deliberative right. process for okay. each yeah. event. And when once you said, what, what, I love that you, you quoted Mao and, and Badu's use of Mao there, this, this question of whenever there's an idea or read a truth, Badu will kind of equate the two, again, yeah. as a Platonist. There is a sense in which the situation, or at least, yeah, I'll say the situation, I won't overcomplicate things. I, don't, I know I have to divine a lot of stuff, but the situation splits in two, right? Obviously, I mentioned, you know, antagonism, dialectical antagonism is Badu still remains faithful to that but what's interesting is that in fidelity what Badu Badu will call sometimes call fidelity a counter state to go back to Leotard from last week there's that similar kind of aspect right doesn't he talk about the agonistics of the yes. language games right which seems yes. very dialectical yeah the agonistics of the language games that there are even if the addresser and the addressee aren't always adversaries, like we, we talked about the way in which language games can be cycled through with friends. You're never really just playing one language game with a friend, except in maybe like very short sequences of phrases. But in terms of, I mean, one of the things that, that Leotard says is that the state of ordinary language could be an adversary for a poetic discourse. Right. So that agonistic principle is, I think, Leotard's emphasis, again, against someone like Habermas, who wants to say, like, well, we have to agree on at least a certain minimum in order to disagree. And I think Leotard sees it the other way around, at the very least. You know, for Badu, this is interesting, too, because if for Badu, when he talks about ethics of truce, and so there would be Every time there's a subject, every time there's an event, and as he says, as far as he is concerned, there's love, politics, science, and art, wherein truth procedures can occur. These are the four singularities. And if philosophy produces no truths, it is interesting that uh, Badu will talk about ethics in a secondary sense, where he will talk about an ethics of philosophy. Now, this is kind of, I think that this doesn't necessarily contradict his point, I think he's just using ethics in a different sense, not in the strict sense in which he elaborates it, because if philosophy doesn't produce truths, which I think is actually a fairly, I don't want to say controversial, but I think it's a good point. And now he may not be the first to say it, but he's, I think he's the first to really articulate this declaratively, because there could be a sense in which philosophy, and I think this is where he's, he's kind of close to Laura Well here, where except I won't 
necessarily obviously they have huge distinctions but i think laura well would agree with this because if philosophy produced truths there would be a sense in which it can no longer function in the way that Badu wants it to, which is as the junction of the four truth procedures. It's the compossible space of the truths of which art, science, love, and politics are capable. So philosophy is this kind of like, as I mentioned in What is Philosophy? If the brain is the junction of art, philosophy, and science and not the union, there's a sense in which philosophy doesn't unify the space it just makes a, a kind of Larawell makes fun of this and calls it like it's a little welcoming area a little foyer a little collection of of truths but i do think it's important right that if philosophy were to create truths it would mean that to a certain extent philosophy would i think kind of in the platonic sense no longer be a friend of wisdom but would be wisdom and then we re resurrect the master, the subject supposed to know, then it would kind of be a master's discourse instead of what I think Badu wants it to be, which is a more of an analytic discourse where it can hold up the mirror, so to speak, to the truth procedures and allow them to keep going in a way that wouldn't conflate itself with the fantasy of, of simulacrum, which is one of the evils he points out right, yeah. in Fidelity, that we can be mistaken this is the interesting thing for Badu, I think, too, where, well, I'll get to that. Sorry. I, I guess that's the thing. Philosophy doesn't create truths. It's the compossibilization of truths. But there can be an ethics of, uh, of philosophy. This is what I meant. This ethics in a secondary sense. And this is so interesting because he says that the ethics of philosophy means not to annihilate terroristically the sophist you brought up leotard this is what got me thinking about it because i do think that badu very much respects leotard but sees him at the very least as an anti-philosopher and in a, in a positive sense sees him as a sophist because of his iteration of language games if philosophy is kind of the discourse of legitimacy on behalf of science for example and if philosophy is in this Wittgensteinian mode, the logic of language games. I think that, that Badu sees that as a sophistical position because for Badu, as I've mentioned to you, the sophist and the philosopher are indistinguishable in certain regimes, except that the philosopher wagers on truth. So for Badu in in capitalism, in democratic materialism, in parliamentary capitalism, wherein truths are not at stake, the philosopher and the sophist are identical. This is again why you got to split the situation. You got you to split it in two. You got to split the domain of opinion, again, a Platonist type of deal, but also mm -hmm. the, the domain of self-interest, economic benefits, blah, blah, blah the state of really what he calls just economics in general of capitalism in order to even begin a fidelity. But I think that for Badu, philosophy needs the sophist. It needs it to keep its integrity as the... Does it need it in the way that we need, that we need social deviance to reinforce the group identity or something like that? But perhaps it, in a different uh, logic or like mode i don't know i mean that's a it's hard to say Maybe that's, I, that it, goes back we, to kind of the set 
idea. I don't know if that really if, jives, but if that's meant in a positive sense, instead of because again, it sounds negative when we say it that way, right? It's I guess that's the um let me read this. I suppose it sounds negative if you think in a linear fashion as far as things go, like if in a in a very linear kind of liberal logic versus a dialectical reasoning, which flips everything on its head, you know? So he says the figure of the sophist is at all times required if philosophy is to maintain its ethics. The sophist reminds us of the emptiness of the category of truth, albeit to deny truths, which is why he must be combated. There is a positive sense in which the sophist keeps the philosopher honest. This is what in I'm in an agonistic to... way, kind of. I think between, so. In yes. the language game between the two, the sophist and the and the philosopher. Well, that's to put it again from the side of the sophist. I think Badu would would say there is. He would want to say, well, accept that there are truths. It's really a it's really a wager on truth. That's the game. But I take your point. But yes, it is an agonistics, right? The sophist has to be conserved as a worthy opponent, not to be annihilated and annulled and merely ridiculed, but conserved and kept in order to keep philosophy honest based on the fact that for Badu, truths are always kind of truths about the void of situations, that we have to bring in a new term here, void. For Badu, based on set theory, the void is a multiple like any other multiple, except that the void's very special. It has one element as the singleton of the void and itself, right? It's this weird little element. And for Badu and for set theory, the void is a part of any set. The minimal set is the void and its singleton. So it belongs to all sets. It's errant. As he says, it kind of, like for Deleuze and Guattari, thought at infinite speed, concepts move at infinite speed, it's self-survey, and that's how they occupy their components all at once. I think there's a sense in which the void has a kind of infinite speed, if you will, and is able to occupy a place in all sets. And this is why... at once. <laughs> right. I mean, this is why truths convoking the void of a situation are able to be universal. It's this interesting play of, of the all and the not all yeah. that might be a kind of boring thing to elaborate. But this, this is why the sophist rem Just, reminding us that truths are empty. If truths were full, they would again be for some, right? They would be full of Arianism, whiteness, whatever. They would have let's say they would be full of differences, but it's precisely the indifference of the void. It's kind of purity, if you will, mm. that keeps truths empty. And this is, I think this is an important point. So yes, the sophist functions positively. It seems like for Badu that it, it remind it keeps the, I think it keeps the philosopher honest, but the sophist doesn't want to wager on truths, right? So they agree on the emptiness of truth, mm -hmm. capital T, but the sophist, will then derive from that the non-existence of truths, that there's only bodies in language or language games, right? And that's where the sophist has to be fought. That's the ground on which he has to be fought for Badu. Where do you think or where do you see perhaps judgment 
coming or playing a role in this conversation because I just think about like who judges what is true and maybe even to go back to the, th- great the, third, the third critique of the critique of judgment, which we I obviously haven't read, but I feel like they're I don't know, does is the critique of judgment? Isn't that somewhat about kind of an ethics? Uh, to, to be very the critique of <laughs> very, the, very the, the second the second critique is is more about ethics in the sense in which it elaborates the notion of the categorical imperative, which is very close to Badu and yet far. I'll leave that aside. Judgment in Kant's sense is based around the questions of the beautiful, the sublime, taste. So one could say, like, who decides what what taste is and how right. it has universality? Yeah. Right. right? Um, and then so, again, I think that splitting happens, right? Like, again, there's a split anytime this happens of, oh, this is good taste, bad taste. Those categories are malleable, but they always they sort of exist, right? Like the line between good and bad or good and evil is not set. It's not static, but the relation, the dialectical relation between them is almost like a universally applied, maybe a truth. I, I don't know if getting yeah, out of my depth it, there, but <laughs> no, this is, this is good because, you know, we're, we're working through, I think some of the, at least the initial difficulties of the text. So a couple of things about judgment in a broad sense, who decide, you said who decides what's true, something like yeah. that, right? Yeah. Or um, what's, what's good and what's evil. Like, because you're right, the philosopher, if they're weighing, they're wagering on truth. Well, I mean, sure, you can say that, but what do you, where does the rubber meet the road, so to speak? Where's the real sort of actualization of the truth? that is not some a priori or like uh right yeah some type of transcendental so a couple things so a couple things first as opposed to the negative prescriptions of the ethics of everyday discourse that badu is criticizing i think for badu this type of ethics which he sees everywhere begins with an a priori evil right don't harm don't torture don't kill Right, we we see it almost in the Ten Commandments. Right, well, um, which I mean, is why he, this which would, is why he sees it as a theological discourse. Doesn't this reduce the human to an animal that is, yes, you know, right, where the good is considered the survivability of the animal, right? Which kind exactly. of exactly, exactly. And he argues against that type of natural law. Uh, he claim wants, claims, yeah. So he kind of reverses the situation instead of starting with evil, defining evil, and then deriving the good from that. Again, that's a negative way of, of doing it. This is what he opposes with an ethics of truth, where the good would be a kind a of source of evil. Uh, uh, yes. It's kind of like Baudrillard there, too, except he's not as cynical and nihilistic as Baudrillard. He even kind of says it that way. He doesn't bring up Baudrillard's name here, but I'm thinking right. of what is it, the agony of evil? I'm trying to remember. Well, it's interesting that he says but, that uh, but, something yeah. like the good or like not the good, but human happiness an ethics structured on human happiness is a nihilism yes always yes so that's a that's a knock at aristotle eudaimonia things like that even a, a epicurean type of deal although i think it simplifies the situation 
it is a knock at, at both of them to a certain degree in different manners. But yes, you're right. Exactly. So we start from the good and ethics of truths because ethics is always relative to truth procedures to an event and encounter. And the good is lies in fidelity to that, drawing out those consequences. So we start with good and evil can come about as a consequence of not, well, for example, there's a couple of them. We've named a few, or we've at least talked about the few. One is terror, which is begins starting from the fullness of a situation rather than its void. So we start with the fullness of a chosen people, a the Aryan race, the French, blah, 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 right? We named a few. So naming the, um, so we start with a, that the event is for some and not for all. There's also betrayal, which is where I think your question lies, where there can be a fidelity, what he calls an obscure subject, a fidelity to an event that would have no truths, but that would derive disastrous consequences. So there can be a simulacrum of truth to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Right. And that obviously this is where I think his ethics would be differently today where the fidelity of the German people to the Nazi event would be a kind of, sorry, that would be, that would be terror in simulacrum. So there's a simulac, there's, there are these false events, if you will, that have no truths, but induce fidelity as though they were, you know, in an obscure subject that induces terror again, because if you start from the fullness of a situation and a particular group who are hierarchized above all others in the procedure, they're the chosen ones, then everyone else outside of that is reduced to nothing or has to be annihilated or dominated at the very least. Right. I mean, you can see this discourse carried out in the way that Western civilization is so fetishized as due to the hierarchization primarily, I think, in terms of its technical ability and its economic and its military. Whether it be in the progressive or reactionary sense, right? Whether its ability to like impact to really enforce its own sort of simulacrum of ethics via a global ethics of, you know, of the market. The market truth, values truth, truth, va- truth, justice in the American way, right? Something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. those are the that's the simulacrum is that that exists whenever that is really predicated on eradication of of something that doesn't conform to the the face of God or something like that, the white face mm-hmm. of Jesus, etc. So yeah, you're right. There's a sense in which that type of fullness of the event. You're elaborating it from a kind of neoliberal perspective. There's also a more reactionary, overtly reactionary sense of returning to traditional values, which is just another form, another right. face of a type Stimulacrum. of conservatism. They're both conservative and they're both kind of terroristic in Badu's sense and probably in a nominal sense. The second way of. But, you know, I mean, in the like enlightenment sense of like the universal, universal rights, the way that. The ideal of liberalism is that the dialogue, the dialectic between producers and consumers or whatever in the, on the marketplace has an ethical outcome by its process alone. If we allow the market to function, the judgments of the market are impartial, right? It's the, it doesn't have an, like, it kind of, this again goes back to my, the thing I'm always harping on about the market sort of, abdicates is our abdication of our own personal responsibility for 
determining who is excluded in the sense yeah. of deviance or who deserves who yeah. deserves to die like to go back to like the yeah. kind of play with the Claire Colebrook who do, who do we kill to save the world yeah capital doesn't care about your truths capital is indifferent it doesn't care that's why there has to be a split in the situation so at least the first regime of evil and there's three at least but Badu lays out three so that first regime would I think very starkly bring up and answer your first question about who decides. Because if there can be obscure subjects who are faithful to an event that is terroristic, that is full, as he says, instead of empty and for all, but full and for some, then there could obviously be an antagonism. And there will be, right? Uh, this is why I think he says when there are collectives, collective subjects of truths, the deliberative means have to be invented each time. There's no a priori rule for deciding. And this gets to the heart of the matter, wherein deciding that the event has taken place because the event takes place in its disappearance in this kind of Meyer Man way. It's right, like yeah. it only leaves a trace. And the persistence of the event is in the naming, the nomination of the event, whether it be French Revolution or Galilean physics, you know, cubism the I love you of an amorous encounter, whatever. I mean, he gives a bunch of examples, but that wager is always undecidable. If it were decidable, it would be a part of the situation and its encyclopedia of knowledge, and then it wouldn't be a truth. It would just be the circulation of sense, of meaning. Mm -hmm. And this is why one of the definitions he has for religion or religious discourse is the continuity of sense and truth. And I think that it's that continuity that goes back again to your Mao quote when, when there's an idea, there has to be the split, this break. It's by breaking with the situation of received meaning, sense, knowledge, et cetera, that one decides from the standpoint of the undecidable, which is one of his definitions of ethics. In theory, the subject, he says, wager on what one only believed once. Wager on what will what one will have only believed once rather than wagering on what one will have always believed, because then you're not really wagering, right? Then you're really just reestablishing, reconfirming opinion. Your question on who decides is very full, a very great question. Who decides is the very process of becoming subject. It's in the very process on wagering on that the event will have happened in being faithful to drawing out the consequences that one decides from the standpoint of the undecidable. And, um, and I think that that's where there can be conflicts. I think this is why he draws on Pascal in one of the meditations in the middle of being an event, because he kind of shows that Pascal's wager, Pascal is not trying to, he says Pascal has more respect for a resolute atheist than for a lukewarm believer. And so Pascal is addressing libertines, atheists, whatever, in his wager. And what's interesting, right, is that at the end of the day, the only way that Pascal's wager fails, and this is why Pascal wants to base his discourse on miracles and not on some kind of like archaeological evidence or some sort of like historical confirmation of the 
the Bible, blah, blah, blah. He's wagering on the most undecidable of the situation of the appearance of miracles. And it's very anti-Humean because Hume's like miracles are shit we don't yet understand scientifically. I think Pascal is, is much closer to Badu here by saying like, no, it's from the position of the undecidable that you have to make a choice. Not choosing is, is still a choice. The only problem with the wager is that one can deny that the event took place, that the Christ event took place, and one can deny its consequences, the resurrection, etc. That's where one can legitimately say, well, my, my choice is to refuse your imposition of, of choosing based on your event. I think that that's, again, kind of to hopefully shed a little bit more light on, on your question on, on judging because we don't have a principle for judging. I think this is why it, it is decision in Badu's sense, right? It is deciding from the standpoint of the undecidable. That's what faith means. That's why I think the word fidelity is still in Badu's point of view. It very reminiscent of kind of Kant's. Kant wants to save a, reg- a place for faith where science and faith are, are, are kind of no longer conflicting. And I think Badu is kind of similar to this, where it's like, look, you can't decide from the standpoint of knowledge. And this is why he's also not a Gnostic. It's not from the position of a certain knowledge within the world that one can decide that a faith is to be taken up and remain strong to. Again, I think I said this earlier, but one of the definitions of ethics that he has is remaining faithful or a fidelity to fidelity. So remaining strong, continuing on, not giving ground on one's desire, not giving ground on one's fidelity to an event. Because that's the second framework of evil, which is, I think, very easy to understand from our Lacanian discussions, where it would be a betrayal of the event, a betrayal of our fidelity, a betrayal of the immortal that we are convoked to be, that we are summoned to be as subjects in a truth procedure. And I think this is interesting, right? Again, if truths are breaks literally in the situation, and sometimes, as he calls it, a counter state, a counter count, if you will, of the situation, because it will kind of um, gather together and count multiples in a way that the state of the situation didn't allow. For example, the state of capitalism, right? Uh, if there is a break in the situation evidenced by a truth and a truth procedure and a fidelity, et cetera, to betray our fidelity to the to a truth is to break with the break and thereby reestablish a continuity with the state of the situation, whether it be opinion, capitalism, received law, politics as usual, the status quo, blah, 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 right? And so one can imagine that, again, who decides that a lot of the resistance and inertia not only would be from those who deny the effects of the and consequences of an event and the fidelity and that the event will have taken place and that there will have been a truth that will have shown itself to have changed the situation. There's, a, there's also inertia from those who, quote unquote, betray the event. Again, to stick with Lacan, like when we, when we went over the Lacan, the charlatan book, we saw that some of his most faithful elaborators betrayed the Lacan event, if you will, this, the event of psychoanalysis or the, the, the truths of the Freud event, even if you will, and became, what was it like evolutionary psychology or, yeah. or some 
kind of pseudoscience. So that's a very particular example, but we can think of all other kinds of betrayals of, of fidelity in politics and love and art and science. We can see all kinds of, of ways in which the burden of fidelity can be so great and the doubts with which we have to struggle in keeping up that faith, that faithfulness is a can can easily lead to to giving up to seeding ground or whatnot. And the third of it is disaster. And I think that all three of them, you could almost think of the RSI, right? They're they're like you can think of the the knots, the Bromian knot of the RSI. There's a sense in which all three can be linked together because I do think that disaster is very much at least entwined with terror, the full like basing a fidelity on, on a fullness of the event. Because for Badu disaster, and, and I, I be, we kind of began our discussion of it, which is the kind of desire to name the unnameable from within a fidelity, from within a, a subject language, a truth language. You know, Badu says this very obscure thing where he says, from the standpoint of knowledge, the unnameable can be named. It's from the standpoint of, of truth procedures that there are, there's always it's always at least one unnameable or sometimes he makes it singular that there is one unnameable. So like for mathematics, non-contradiction as, as we brought up for physics, we've talked about this. There could be like the unnameable would be totality or unity, right? The grand unified theory, one equation to rule them all or some shit, right? It would make truths re-elaborate a kind of set of all sets, a totalizing and totalitarian situation where every element in the situation would be changed by a truth. It's kind of like there's almost a kernel of the real, if you will, unaffected by truths. And not respecting that kernel, not respecting the real of the situation, one can bring about disaster. When it's the trauma of, you know, dog catches car, as you said. This is one of the more difficult aspects of, of his point, but I think unnameables and love, again, could come, really comes close to terror, right? Because it's precisely that kind of kernel of duissance, right? The, the very thing you need to isolate to prove the lover's fidelity to oneself that becomes terroristic it becomes a disaster it becomes possession we went over this in 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 proust and signs right the the signs of jealousy and all of this there can be a point where it, it culminates in a kind of paranoid frenzy whereby the very unnameable kernel of the love that flourishes between two has to be named and, and evoked and brought out that's kind of the impossible real that's the unsymbolizable in Lacan's sense, it's foreclosed to truth, one could say, in, in the same way that the real is foreclosed to thought. So not respecting that unnameable, whereby truth would be total, whereby every element would be forced in a produced sense. That's where we run into trouble. That's where we have a disaster catastrophe. And I think that that's what he associates with 
a kind of totalitarianism. Yeah, I mean, the totalitarianism of there is no alternative. Yeah. Right. The alternative is foreclosed. Every attempt to implement an alternative fails and invites this problem of evil to reassert itself despite our best, at least, best intentions, the evocation of the best intentions, at least. This is, again, why I think he he kind of, I think, sees terror, betrayal, and disaster as, as at least intertwined, because sometimes he will talk about, it's kind of naming the void of the situation or naming this unnameable that, that can lead to terror, that leads to disaster, so whether it be from the Nazi regime and naming the the Jew as the outsider, we can think about giving the scapegoat a, a name for an enemy within that has to be extricated and eliminated. I think that that's, we could see that all throughout history and politics. I mean, I, I gave an example in love. I think in politics, it's, it's, it's very clear that sort of naming the scapegoat, giving it, a name leads to terror, leads to this type of terrorism. In art, it can be non-art. Naming non-art, sectioning off that which cannot participate in the domain of art and has to be eliminated or suppressed. I think that could be an example. It's a very flimsy and broad one, but we can, we can see this. I think this is the brilliance of Duchamp's Virgin Mary piece. We still see people seething over that shit. And it's that very split in the situation that that he's trying to convoke. But, you know, naming non-art begins to be a disaster for art. Because as you said, it tries to re-solidify, reconsolidate a certain rigidity in fidelity. As if the fidelity to art had to be found in the past. And no novelty right, yeah, would be yeah, allowed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just kind of restating what. No, that's good. That's. I'm good. just restating what you just said. But yeah, you're you're exactly right. The means of invention would be deemed suspect. And I guess we've already said a couple for science, right? I mean, non-contradiction in mathematics, totality in in physics. I'm sure we can think of other. We, we wouldn't have to go down the line in the sciences but i'm sure we could if if we if i were more creative at the moment <laughs> but i will say one thing that's interesting i mean i gave a visual artistic example one thing that that badu here and this this troubles me in terms of the ethics of truce if science art politics love each have their own ethics each have their own events and their own truth procedures that are singular each time I know Badu doesn't always do this, but he has a tendency to reduce science to mathematics. He has a tendency to reduce art to the poem. He has a tendency to reduce politics to communism or whatever name it may take, mm -hmm. which I, I kind of tend to be lenient on. He has a tendency to reduce love to the heterosexual couple. So... His views may have evolved since 1993. It's been almost, it's been 30 years. I'm not going to like totally write him off, but I do think that that, that worries me a little bit only because he has a tendency to particularize what are these generic categories. 
politics, love, art, and science are these generic categories and they fit very well. But his tendency, at least he seems to privilege one mode of its appearance over all the others. Like his relation to cinema is very problematic for like the discourse of art. One could see like in Adorno, his relation to jazz, very complicated in sense mm -hmm. of like, just as an example. But again, like, you know, so there's a, there's a sense in which I think it may be in ethics, but it, I think it might be being an event where he starts talking about, or it could be what is love. I'm trying to remember, but he, I think it was being an event where he starts talking about love as an example. And he's, he's talking about the two and all that's very great. Lacanian. And then he says like, you know, when a man, and it's almost like when a man loves a woman, like it's like, okay, that's fair. That's one example, one traditional right. example of love, but that stands out today. I think 30 years, 35 plus years later, if we count being an event stands out very much today as privileging a particularity. Derrida would be wagging his finger a bit here. And then the Lacanian me also, and, and probably in you is like, well, transference is love, right? So there's, there's almost this like, which is why I think he sees psychoanalysis as the, one of the privileges, privileged discourses on love, on the amorous encounter, et cetera. But, you know, these hierarchies, I think, and it didn't show up really here as much in the book. It may, he may have, but he could have just been going in passing. But at least like, if you look at, at the types of privileges he gives, and again, we're all biased to the material that, that inspires us. Even in philosophy, like the Western philosophy is, is a bias for myself, right? So I could always do better to, to read philosophy from other traditions. Obviously, nobody's perfect, but I just wanted to point that out, that that type of privileging could be a threat to the kind of generic procedures that he envisions truth procedures to be and the universalism that he is wanting to. Um... On that note, I was kind of interesting that he he almost strikes me as saying like there's not this universal list ethics but there are like micro ethics like the ethics of politics the ethics of art etc to go back to last week and leotard it's like there's not this grand narrative of of ethics as you know capital e ethics that rules all domains but there's only these sort of micro ethics confined to the different categories of what have you it depends on how we mean micro and if we mean it i don't think you mean it necessarily in a dismissive way but you are pointing no. out to the fact that there are singular truth singular events even if we have these generic categories and there are singular procedures summoning subjects and singular fidelities even if they be collective or invoke collective subjects there are singularities and ethics are always if they are singular if there is an ethics for a truth if it's, all, it's kind of like there's a logic for a world um yes i would agree with that except for the fact that you know the universalism is derived from the consequences of the fidelity suit event because 
I think for Badu, a veritable event, a true event, not a simulacrum of an event that invokes terror would be for all and therefore universalist. So we don't begin with universalism. It's a part of the process. It's a part of the drawing out the results, if you will. And I think that's where the good, wherein the good lies. And it can be, and this is where one of the faces of evil, as we just said, it lies in a particularity derived from events rather than a universalism. Does that make sense? I mean, hopefully I address your, your question. I mean, that last bit, I don't know if I, I'd have to chew on that. Well, if an event is not for all, then I think that for Badu, it's a simulacrum. If the consequences of an event of a truth do not render differences indifferent, then they're only for some. If they privilege a particular race in politics, for example, a particular, mm -hmm. if they privilege the jouissance of love rather than the consequences of a fidelity, of a, of a kind of non-relation of, you know, whatever the fuck. So it could be based on sexual pleasure. And we know, mm -hmm. we know fits of passion that are like that. You know, if it privileges a certain form of art, traditional value, traditional art, representational art, socialist realism, that's a kind of full event for art. You know, if it privileges a type of science, what the Lisboa we might call major science, state science, that's a type of fullness for science it excludes the means of inventing it it, yeah, it restricts okay. them it, so the closed it, set the closed set sort it, of a yeah, closed group closed set yeah it it's a way in which it can only be for some and it'll reinforce capitalist decadence or whatever right it'll reinforce the marketplace of values which which are different to truths where does the indifference come from does the indifference come from the situation the state of the situation from opinion, from communication, from consensus, which is always forced, or does it come from the elaboration of truths and their consequences? That's the question of where does the sameness, which side of the, of the split of the antagonism does the sameness come from? I think that's, that's, that's the question. I think this is where, where Paul becomes this militant, right? Because the universalism that's elaborated in his little book on St. Paul is this question of if Christ did not rise from the dead, then no one rises from the dead. If Christ rose from the dead, then everyone rises from the dead. This is one of the basic, broadest way of, of sort of elaborating what Badu sees in Paul's militancy and deriving the consequences from that fidelity to the Christ event. Because if Christ didn't rise from the dead, no one does. Universal. If Christ rose from the dead, that is the truth we have to be, and we have to wager on it. Even if Badu denies the consequences of resurrection, whatever. It's precisely wagering on that. Nothing proves it in the situation except for this faithfulness to, and even if, you know, there are so to speak, were witnesses. That testimony can always be debated in the court of opinion. That's hearsay yeah. or that's that firsthand evidence can always be debated. That's the thing, right? It's wagering on that undecidable that Christ rose and everyone will have risen, will rise. 
that's universal. Doesn't care about differences, isn't based in any particularity. It's for everyone. I think that that's one of the models that he uses for the universalism of the event. We could think of that as, yes, that is a micro in the sense in which it's based on a singularity, mm-hmm. right? It's a particular event, a particular, particular event. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, fidelity. It's singular in its appearance. It's singular in its procedure and it's, but it's universal in its effects. Little things can have big consequences, right? So I guess that's, <laughs> that's where, where, how do we emphasize the micro is really all I'm trying to say. Because singular universal is what Badu is most interested in. And we have to be very careful about particularity. Where does the particular come in? Because I think it's only a moment. If the consequences are particular, then that's, that's evil. If the consequences of, an, of a truth are particular, that's evil. That's one of the forms of evil. A truth for the white race or blah, blah, blah. Except yeah, for, right? blood and soil, a truth for the, the German destiny. I mean, there's, yeah. that's, that's one of the things where you know, his relationship to Heidegger is so interesting because he definitely agrees with Heidegger on certain, certain declarations about ontology, except mm-hmm. that late Heidegger especially wants to kind of demote philosophy and, and, and promote the poem as the means of, of ontological discourse. Badu wants to remain faithful to the poem in its domain of art, but sees real philosophy beginning after Parmenides. If Parmenides had a had an intimation of truths whereby philosophy would participate, being and thinking are the same, he still elaborates it in the form of the poem. It's in breaking with the poem that he sees philosophy going with Plato because Plato is the one to promote mathematization as the discourse particular to universalism, particularly, and this is again, kind of why Lacan turns to the math theme, whether that's charlatanism or not, the math theme or mathematics allows for a transmissible knowledge for everyone, for all, for all times. It participates in these eternal truths that that become, that appear in the world and weren't always there. So I think that's why he sees mathematics as a break from the pre-philosophical state of philosophy in the poem and why he refuses Heidegger and this poeticization of being, which is a kind of, a lot of times becomes a kind of destinal truth of a people and all that shit. That's why his relationship to Heidegger, he's, he's pretty good at giving Heidegger props and obviously, you know, pointing out where he breaks with, with Heidegger. I got to force you to talk about Dune at least once before we might as well end with Dune. (laughs) I was thinking about this question of the undecidable, the indiscernible, the unnameable, and the generic. These are the four negative conditions. Well, conditions is, is, he wants to call conditions art, science, politics, and love. They're also truth procedures. But the four negative, I don't even know the right noun for it, but the, but the four negative um, aspects of truth is the subject is indiscernible from within the situation, right? As a consequence of fidelity, because it's elite, wagering on the event is illegal. It's, it's not, there's no rule 
There's no way to prescribe the manner in which one wagers on, decides on an undecidable because from within the situation, the event did not take place, is not an element, at least that's represented by the state of the situation. Generic procedures, right? Again, because it's not an event for some, it's an event for all. And the unnameable, I was kind of thinking about the, this problem that Paul has, right? In searching the past and the future for that ideal point at which to bifurcate, to split the situation in two. Mm-hmm. And the sacrifice, which is part of his fidelity, that he has to make in losing his wife. I thought you might be able to elaborate that or, or, or chew <laughs> on that for a second. But there is this this kind of he's trying to calculate, right? With his mentat training, he's trying to calculate the the best possible world. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which we've talked about him in terms of like Leibniz and possibility right. and all yeah, this yeah, stuff. Yeah. And how can he decide on the best possible outcome that preserves his wife, Chani, right? Mm-hmm. How to preserve my self-interest in the best possible future. And it seems like by remaining faithful to a for all, so to speak, even if it comes with lots of death and Badu will will say that like, hey, fidelity, some people have to be sacrificed, violence. There is a kind of particularly, I mean, violence is not totally off the table for Badu in terms of fidelity and all this stuff. I guess I just, I was just thinking about this, like there is this like indiscernible point of like, which subject am I going to be? Mm-hmm. Which event am I going to be faithful to? Am I, am I going to be faithful to the, the love that I have? Or if in sacrificing Trani, there is a way of becoming even more faithful to that love and also being faithful to this, this politics, this future, you know, this jihad, right? This, that was the example that I, I was thinking of before talking to you today, where there is this like ethical dilemma that, um, that Paul faces, and it could be very well between two fidelities, as I said, right? Between this fidelity, fidelity of a politics and this ideal point, this ideal outcome, and the fidelity to Trani. And there's this, there, there is this impossible decision to right. be made yeah, yeah, yeah. between two fidelities. Yeah. And, um, Due to you contingency, know, due to contingency, there, right? Right. Not, due to all, contingency. not all things are possible. Right. So, is he to remain faithful to Chani and the love in which that probably made him what he was? Right. Yeah. He couldn't have got there without her and without that love. I think. Or is he to remain faithful to this this future vision that he has that that kind of leads to the potentially best outcome right the least um, bad outcome the least bad <laughs> almost outcome. like pascal's wager in a kind of way right right i mean you know there's nothing to lose and everything to gain if one accepts the terms of the christ event interesting 
you know, and, and, like and, and a lot of Christians have, there are those Christians who may be deemed heretics that believe that like Christ's redemption resurrection is, is, is literally for all, not just for believers. So even those, that type of fidelity could be countered to Pascal where even, even atheists are saved. Now, obviously that, that runs counter to a Catholic kind of uh fidelity. Ironically, given the right, like Catholic, literally, I sort of, the, sort of means universal, right? Exactly. Exactly. And one wonders if that, if that's not more of a political meaning than this religious aspect, right? Yeah. Interesting. Then, then, then it's for all in the sense in which it's dominating the earth, the universal truth of Christ or what have you. Yeah. I mean, the way in which the church and the Pope was, and still is, but was for right. a long time, a, a very political force. But yeah, I guess that, that that's, that's part of, part of what I was thinking was like, Faced with these two fidelities, now this is this is interesting, right? Because when Badu's talking about fidelity, he's talking about he's talking about wagering on an event in terms of one truth procedure. I see between at least two truth procedures, right? We could say, as I did cynically, that oh well, preserving Chani would just be self-interest. But Badu says love, and there is an equality of the truth procedures. I think at least there's an egalitarianism. If love is just as much a truth procedure. And a truth and event as politics. Now we have to decide between being faithful to one or the other. And we know what Paul decides, but we also know that that's an impossible decision. And I think in Badu's discourse, like in Lacan, the only thing that's impossible is the real. Right? So the compossibility and incompossibility is also an impossibility for. For Paul, and yet he has to decide. Not deciding is a disaster. Right. Or at very least, it's obviously a betrayal. But, you know, he is faced with betraying one or the other. And it, you know, uh, you would have to tell me if he is able to synthesize this tension in a way that justifies or somewhat does justice to his fidelity to his love in the sacrifice. I suppose he does the way that Chani dies is the least horrific ending for her and for him and his family. Because like part of this too, is he has to sort of destroy his own godhood, so to speak. Like he has to undermine that while not setting up his children for that to be their got his godhood thrust upon them so he has to discredit himself he has to allow his children to survive and he has to protect chani from like the worst torture and like all these other horrible potential futures and so forth so and he does kind of manage at the end to kind of find the perfect path that achieves all his ends although obviously the costs are are quite steep yeah well, Which I think is what makes the, I don't know, the, it's a very beautiful book, honestly. I've become obsessed with it. I hadn't noticed. I mean, Messiah in particular. But to me, the more, I mean, I sent you this quote from, and I don't recall which book this is from, but I thought this was the most relevant thing to our text today was, remember that there exists a certain malevolence about the formation of any social order. It is the struggle for existence by an artificial entity. Despotism and slavery hover at the edges. 
Many injuries occur and thus the need for laws. The second half, I don't think that, I think that Badu would be coming at this from a different, uh, he would maybe not like or argue against the second half, which I think is just because he's, I think Herbert is coming from this like liberal perspective here rather than doing something closer to what Badu is. I see some resonances. I suppose that's where there might be a discordance between the social and the political because politics as a truth or part of a truth procedure or fidelity to an event wouldn't necessarily be reduced to the social. So there's a way in which I think he would agree with this notion of a malevolence. There's a founding violence in the social order. I mean, Kant shows it, Rousseau, et cetera. You can go back and, and see it everywhere. And then there's a way in which the state of the situation has to perpetuate that violence in order to, and this is what we could even say is the need for laws. So there is a, there is a weird way in which there's a kind of, a, there's a kind of equivocal nature to this quote. I don't know who's speaking here. So that could be purposeful that there is a kind of equivocal nature that the, the need for laws is in fact the need to continue the founding violence of a society and perpetuate it in order to perpetuate the, you know, inequality, right? So I think that insofar as Badu thinks of egalitarianism, and again, egalitarianism from the perspective of truth, right? If truths render differences indifferent and thereby the same, and thereby, you know, it's the same for everyone, that I think is a basic understanding of what he means by egalitarianism, right? So I think that's where I think politics and the social would be distinct for uh, for Badu. Not to say there, there wouldn't be forms of sociality involved with political sequences, but that the elaboration of of the truth of politics, of political sequences, and the, so to speak, fiction, the ideal point, future retroactively, whereby all the truths could be forced and there could be a completed truth procedure whereby there would be all the consequences would be drawn, whereby there would be an egalitarian principle erected, save for the unnameable, right, which avoided the situation, which is always particular for each procedure. Then we could think of politics as this continual transformation and not merely a formation. If I'm going to be like trying to parse what's going on here. So check this out. This is the second half of the quote. This is actually, this is Leto II in God Emperor. The law develops its own power structure, creating more wounds and new injustices. Such trauma can be healed by cooperation, not by confrontation. The summons to cooperate identifies the healer. That's where it becomes. <laughs> I'm sure we could read this in a, we could deconstruct this, you know, if we wanted to in a, in a billion ways. I guess I'll just say, I, I figured this was Leto. Well, the, to, okay. Consider the so, source. I thought you brought up the founding violence, right? Like the violence aspect. The law develops its own power structure, creating more wounds and new injuries, right? So that is the repetition right. of the founding violence of the social. But interestingly, he says such trauma cannot be healed by cooperation. Oh, such trauma can be 
healed by cooperation, not by confrontation. The summons to cooperate identifies the healer. Again, consider the source, right? I think I think Herbert's being also tongue in cheek. Is this Leto or Leto two? Leto two, yeah, yeah. So Leto two, God Emperor, right? So cooperate, as Kant kind of says in What Is Enlightenment, it's like you know you can have your your private disagreements, but you know when it comes down to it, and the state says obey, you do what you're told, right? So cooperate's a kind of loaded word there. And who are we confronting? Are we confronting the God Emperor to overthrow him? So yeah, I mean, I, I mean that's what he wants. Like he's, he I know, is, I know, I know. He, that but is he what has he to, wants. But he has to do it. He has to kind of do it himself, right? As as always, in this kind of martyrdom and sacrifice. I know that gets us into the weeds of doing right. Yeah, exactly. We don't have to. But but I think I think that's a very that's a very fruitful quote to mine because we could obviously read it declaratively at face value, but we could also consider the layers of meaning that are to be parsed out, sure. um, you know, and, you know, if we were to read it less cynically than I just did, <laughs> we, could, we could think of, um, you know, I do think that Badu would, would say there still has to be an element of confrontation confronting the situation. And how do we confront it? We confront it by separating, by splitting off from it and thereby cooperating in a truth procedure whether it be individually or collectively, depending on the event, depending on the, the fidelity, et cetera. So at the very least, there has to be a, a kernel of agonistics like he brought up with Leotard, right? There has to be some adversary. It may not be a person, right? It could be just the state of the situation, the state of ordinary language, the state of pseudoscience, that kind of thing. So I'm glad yeah. we, we got to end with... <laughs> A little bit of of Dune lore, but I thought it was a good way to to as an example outside of the ones Badu gives, or yeah, right, or some of the yeah, more exactly. general ones that we were able to. Yeah, I mean, until I brought it up, I hadn't even thought about the fact that one Paul is is forced with choosing between these fidelities. So you know, there's... I think that's a good spot to stop at, and uh, yeah, we can wrap up another edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry. And Taylor Atkins, we'll see you all next week. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Violence because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.